Hey listeners, this is a quick note from Stephanie Bastic, Associate Editor of The American Scholar and definitely not an American in Paris, that this episode was recorded well before the Paris lockdown and that both Thomas and his guest and his producer in Paris are safely ensconced in their homes. Hello, bonjour. This is Thomas Chatterton Williams, your host for Americans in Paris, a podcast of The American Scholar. We're coming to you from the American Library in Paris, which, along with the Phi Beta Kappa Society, is sponsoring this episode. Today I'm speaking with Lauren Collins, staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of When in French, Love in a Second Language. Lauren is working on a book about America's only coup d'etat, perpetrated by white supremacists in 1898 in Wilmington, North Carolina, her hometown. Lauren, thank you for joining me here today. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Um, for me, you're kind of the quintessential American in Paris, married to a French, uh, French Can you man. add that to my bio? <laughs> <laughs> quintessential. Please, thank you. Yeah, with yeah. pleasure. Uh, married to a Frenchman, uh, a romance you described beautifully in your first book, When in French. Um, that relationship began in London and took you first to Geneva. How did you end up over here? Um, I ended up here by through sheer will and determination, because as you said, I was living in Geneva very unhappily, and we were looking for the next place to go and thought, hey, wouldn't it be great to live somewhere where um, we are not both kind of like Borat, you know, people in a a country that's not our own with no idea how to navigate. So um, my husband and I knew that we wanted to come to Paris and then had to find a professional vehicle kind of to get here for him at least I mean my work um like yours is pretty portable but anyway um yeah I ended up here really because I wanted to be here and um keep telling people if you want to be happy for the rest of your life to live in Switzerland and then then move to Paris (laughs) and so like I'm you have more experience being an expat actually than than most Americans I meet here you've lived in in three different like highly different societies Mm -hmm. What is, I wonder what you think makes, um, what is special about being an American in Paris? Because I think that it is different than being like an American in London or Switzerland or some of these other places. I want to ask, I want to sort of interrogate and ask your thoughts, first of all, about um, about terminology, about mm-hmm. the word expat versus um, you know, I think we know what an ex- I think we know what an exile is, which is someone who leaves his or her country for political reasons. But like, what's an expat and what's an immigrant? Um, and it was funny. I tweeted about this recently, and the response was far more you know fulsome than I would have guessed. But it's it's kind of like a subject that's interesting to me and close to my heart too. I'm I'm an American citizen and I'm a French citizen now too, and I think that you know, coupled with the fact that um, I live here and work here and intend to spend the rest of my life here and have children here. Um, I think I'm, I, well, I think I'm an immigrant. You're no longer an I expat. I think I'm an immigrant. I don't think I can, I don't know if I can, um, you know, fairly call myself an expat. And I just think it's so interesting, like in what situations um, we choose to use that word and who who self-identifies as expats and immigrants and also who are identified by other people as expats and immigrants. So, with that, I mean, what what do you call what do you call yourself? You're right. I, I, so I would call myself an expat unless I'm complaining to my wife, and then I'm an immigrant, <laughs> <laughs> and right. she needs to take my 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 struggle seriously. But I think that for me, expat has something to do with not needing the society, uh-huh. um, or maybe an idea that I mean, I, I don't I, need to be here. Uh, uh-huh. I I could go home, and I could arguably go to, home to. 
I mean, it's debatable now, but uh, most people, even most French people I interact with, feel like I might go home to a society that um, in many ways has an edge over theirs or, or uh-huh. is wealthier than theirs or more powerful than theirs. So I think that we tend, even though the words don't necessitate this, we tend to think of expat as more frivolous, um, mm-hmm. not determined by necessity, um, an immigrant as you came here for a better life. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a good take on it. I guess I'm. My idea is maybe the word immigrant shouldn't have as negative. That stigma. I agree with you. I, yeah, you're right. It. It's also racialized. I think right. even though um, even though I'm not white, I think that in this situation, and as an American in Paris, uh, and maybe as someone who's somewhat ambiguous in terms of skin tone, mm-hmm. I get the. I get some of the perks of uh, of what seems like whiteness and being thought of as an expat instead of being a brown immigrant. Right. Yeah, you know? my little soapbox is Americans can be immigrants, can be yeah. immigrants too. Um, but Americans in Paris, what makes it special? I mean, I think there's such a rich um, genealogy of Americans in Paris, and that always seems like kind of an exciting thing to be a part of. I mean... Um, you know, there's a lore of Americans in Paris. I know um, Anne Ma, who's a member of the American Library and who's a friend of mine, is working on a book about um, Jackie Kennedy, you know, at the time, Jack- Jacqueline <laughs> Bouvier's years in Paris. And I think there's um, certainly... Alice Kaplan has written about that as well, really yeah. well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I, love, I love that book. Um, but there's a romance to the idea of the American in Paris. I mean, there's also just a good infrastructure for Americans in Paris. I mean, here we are like sitting, the American <laughs> library. sitting in the American library in Paris. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what, um, what makes it so special. I mean, I think actually the answer to that also is, um, as you said, I mean, I've, I've lived in different cities in Europe and, um, the community of Americans in Paris is, I, I love the I love the Americans that are in Paris. I think a lot of them are really rooted in Paris. You know, have been in Paris for a long time. Will be in Paris for a long time. Um, I think there's like a you know deep and deep and long tradition of Americans in Paris. Yeah, I want to get into your work, but it's kind of actually it's a treat to talk to you about uh, your life here as well. So before we transition to your work, I just wonder. Um, you said that you're going to stay here uh, for the rest of your life. I wonder what you feel like one gives up when when one immigrates or emigrates and and, and when one chooses to make a life elsewhere. I've been thinking about this a lot myself uh, in recent years. Um, Where to begin? (laughs) Uh, Peanut butter. No. (laughs) You know, I think so much of it it really fluctuates, I think, a lot with your life circumstances. I mean, so, some days it is as frivolous as, like, literally a margarita. <laughs> like, yesterday I was like, oh, I want a margarita. Good um, luck. I've actually stooped so low as to go to Chipotle, beg them to, to make it a takeout. And <laughs> they were like, we don't really do that, um, madame. But we rigged up some kind of, like, paper cup with saran wrap over it. Amazing. You can get a margarita. You can get a takeout margarita <laughs> in Paris if you're really committed to it. Um, but I think what what you give up, I mean, the, the most obvious thing, but really the most profound thing is just proximity to um, people you love. 
Um, and, you know, that can be harder or less hard depending on the vagaries of, um, you know, age and illness and also like happiness and childbirth and just, I mean, I think you know well oh, yeah. that missing, um, important you know what, moments. I was going to say missing the important moments, but I think it might even be the opposite. It's like for the important moments, usually you make the effort and somehow show up. Um, but it's the, I think, <laughs> I think it's the banal moments that you give up. I mean, I'm like, I would love to go to a movie mm-hmm. with my mother and then like go home <laughs> to yeah. our to our respective it's um, always very it's always an event when i come home so it's right. not the same as just spending time together yeah and I, so i think i think the just cumulative loss of those kind of like simple moments together over long periods of time is i mean that that can feel like a sacrifice yeah i think it changes you too i think that it's different for me 10 years out or 9 years out than than it was 2 years out you know it, those moments add up. Yeah, they, ex- exactly. Like it's just, um, you know, right. Kind of making an appearance each time you you step into um, your family members and and other people's lives. But I mean that you know, as I said, like that changes. That can also be a nice thing. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> who minds missing out on on some banal moments every once <laughs> some in a while? Banal too. arguments. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you gain by being in a foreign space? Uh, so much, I think. Um, I mean, for me, the overwhelming uh, answer to that is is a is a language that I didn't speak at all before um, before marrying a French person and moving to France. And so you gain the language, but there are so many, um, you know, it's like you get ten free gifts along with you, being able to read. You know, you get. You not wrote a, something that I think about. You said you get twice the movies. Yeah, twice yeah. the movies, <laughs> twice the holidays, yeah. twice the recipes, twice the. Um, it's just. For me, like, you know, learning French in um, what I guess I'm forced to admit was was midlife is like the <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. So, I, I mean, that's just like that's a huge, a huge one. Mm-hmm. So you also get um, twice the subject matter and you've really thrown yourself into this society in a way that not all of us have. And I'm really impressed by it. In February, you published an incredible complex story for The New Yorker about a French woman named Jeanne Calment, uh, who may or may not have been the world's oldest woman. It's a tour de force of reporting that becomes a detective story, uh, taking you to the south of France and even to Russia. And how did that piece come about? So I was kind of casting around for something to write about. Um, and I think I saw like a little squib about Jeanne Calment in, in a French paper. By the way, her name is, is a little bit tricky and I've never quite figured out how I should be pronouncing it. We're going to say Calment because that's how it's spelled. In the South, there's kind of like a region. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people where she's from say Calmaine. Oh, really? But we would be like putting on a, <laughs> a Provencal accent if we did that. And yeah. I think it's unnecessary. So Jean Calment for our purposes. Um, anyway, I saw like an article about her. And so just just to back up, like she was a household name, apparently. Right. In Fran- like all right. French people know They who know she her, is. yeah. She died if in If you're a French person out there listening who doesn't know who she is, sorry for generalizing. But people know, people definitely, she was like, a, a celebrity at the end of her life. So um, I saw something in the papers about how some Russians were like, had launched this theory that maybe she wasn't who she was. And so I it's was always thinking, the Russians. I was like, this is, this sounds fun. This sounds interesting. And at first I, I thought that 
um, their hypothesis about her, you know, just on first look sounded kind of convincing. But anyway, I thought, oh, fantastic, perfect. Like, it's a story about this old woman. I'll go hang out in Arl, you know, like get some sunshine, you know, just <laughs> it, it's, it was, I thought it sounded kind of like just a nice, fun, enjoyable piece and sort of a lark. It ended up consuming six months of my life. Um, as you said, taking me to Russia. I mean, it turned out to be just um, far more complicated and um, consuming and really, to be honest, interesting than I had initially even guessed. And did you, um, during the six months of reporting the piece and kind of digging, did you go back and forth? Uh, because the story is trying to figure out whether, in fact, she was uh, her daughter. Right. Right. And did you? Yeah, just, okay. So just to yeah, like maybe you can lay it out clearly sure. for, for people who haven't read the story. Jean Calment was born in Arles in 1875. And she died in 1997 at the age of 122, according to the official uncontested um, narrative. Um, And at 122 made her, like, by leagues, the world's (laughs) oldest person. And and so that, in and of itself, just um, statistically speaking, makes her suspicious. I mean, she's a a really conspicuous outlier in the field of extreme longevity. So... Um, over the years, like, you know, various people had kind of been like, was she really 122? That seems really, really old, considering that the, um, I never know how to formulate the superlative, the next <laughs> oldest person ever to have lived was only 119. And so in gerontology years, I mean, it's like, those three years, years are like huge. Three years yeah. is like, <laughs> it's like a thousand years. But anyway, so the Russian theory, and this is the theory that's being um, posited by I never know if it's a gerontologist or a geriatrician. Gerontologist, I believe. Gerontologist. It's a gerontologist, a Russian gerontologist, and then a Russian mathematician uh, he met on Facebook. A glassblower. A (laughs) glassblower. Mathematician turned glassblower. Um, They think that what happened is that Jean Calment's daughter, Yvonne, um, died of tuberculosis in 1934. They think that what actually happened is that Jeanne died in 1934, and her daughter assumed her identity, living as Jeanne for the rest of her life, um, and therefore explaining why she lived so long, because really she was um, 23 years younger. Mm-hmm. So that that's like the you know the theory and the mystery that we're that we're discussing. And then you go down a deep rabbit hole trying to figure out <laughs> what is what. Deep, and did you go back deep, and deep forth what hole. you believed? I'm sure you must have. I did. I mean, so as I said, I started out just kind of casually um, intrigued by the Russian theory. And um, their motive, their, you know, their theory, their idea was that the family's motive would have been to um, to avoid inheritance taxes. Um, and, they, and they pointed out some other kind of discrepancies in the record, um, you know, that raised raised your curiosity. For instance, that on one identity document, you know, taken early on, she had black eyes, where at the end of her life it was said that she had gray eyes. Um, the same identity document said that she was a meter and 52 centimeters tall. At the end of her life, she, you know, was being measured as a meter and 50 centimeters, which seems impossible that someone would only lose two centimeters yeah. of height over the course of a um, 122-year lifetime. <laughs> um, there, were other, there were other just odd things 
why was the name of the daughter not on the grave that Jean Calment mm-hmm. was ultimately buried in? And anyway, the accumulation of um, just kind of like bizarre details was enough to certainly make me think, okay, I, I really want to know more about this. Um, but as I started investigating, and as you can read in the piece, a, a number of these things um, turned out to be misapprehensions. They turned out to be kind of easily explainable if you're in the right frame of mind. If you're not, though, and that's where that's where the story becomes really tricky and interesting is like people looking at the same set of facts here are just extrapolating some wildly different ideas of what might have happened in the life of this, you know, bourgeois family in a provincial town over the course of the 19th century. Sorry, the late 19th century and over the course of the 20th century. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, they're looking at the same facts and they're coming to different conclusions. The people that knew her, that you spoke to in Arles, who cared for her, they believe that she's uh, 122 years old, that she was. They don't They did. So the, like, several um, hundred, maybe even several thousand of just kind of like regular people in Arles banded together together and formed this Facebook group that they called the counter-investigation to the investigation. And, I mean, it was amazing, the stuff these people came up with. Basically, they put out a call to the, you know, the people of Arles to, like, you know, get down in their basements, get up in their attics, and just go rooting through everything they had, um, you know, for documents, for photographs. And let's remember also, I mean, some of these people were related to her, mm-hmm. but um, even for kind of like, you know, first person testimony and reminiscence um, of the life of Jean Calment. And I mean, as I said, these people are amateurs. They put together an amazing body of, um, it's the documents they collected, but it's also their sophistication in analyzing them and, and being able to, um, you know, pinpoint like a, a certain outfit might, might have been worn between the years of, I don't know what, 1931 and 1933. Or, anyway, yeah. they, they kind of crowdsourced all this information about Jean Calment and we're, we're really able to knock down a lot of, um, a lot of the, you know, lines of argument um, that the Russians had come up with. But yeah, it was funny. I mean, I think one of their most convincing points is among the most simple, which is just like, what, this woman would have, you know, well, this woman, this family would have hoodwinked an entire town. Everyone knew them. They were merchants. They lived right it's in the a small center town. of town. Exactly. Yeah. They were, you know, they were kind of pillars of the community at the, at the church. Um, and anyway, it, it it was it was fascinating to see how just um, you know through tiny details here and there and bits of kind of collective memory they were able to like really reconstruct to I think a, a persuasive degree um, the you know vanished world of mm-hmm. their city from you know going back to more than a hundred years ago. But what's interesting is it's people looking at the same set of facts and coming to different conclusions, but your piece becomes like it goes in a whole nother direction when it starts getting into why the Russians might want to undermine right. and what the, her credibility and what they might be hoping to gain from this. So the question I kept asking myself was, 
why these people and why now? It made no sense to me that um, this kind of undistinguished Russian gerontologist and this mathematician turned glassblower um, sitting behind their keyboards. He makes glass objects. That's what he mainly does. Sitting behind their keyboards in the year 2018 suddenly, you know, seized upon this French woman's life and made it their their mission to um, to prove um, that it was identity fraud. It like made no sense to me. So enter enter another character, um, which is even potentially more improbable. But there's someone <laughs> there's there's um, there's a scientist named Aubrey de Grey who is the head of something called the Sense Research Foundation in Silicon Valley, and he is one of the leading. Um, He's one of the leaders of the anti-aging movement. He has said that he believes there are people on Earth. Um, could be you, Thomas. Could be me. <laughs> from uh, from your lips on Earth to right God's now, ears. Yeah, who, who are going to live a thousand years. And so, I mean, it's not only him, but there are tons of people who are looking for ways. Um, it's not even really to, um, to undo aging, but to prevent it from ever happening. And the reason that... Um, they and by extension, you know, many people who are in this kind of like um, techno futurist orbit are interested in Jean Calment is because um, a sample of her DNA exists and is just sitting there um, in a vault. I, I, I believe it's sitting in a vault and I have reason to believe that. I can't say for sure, but. I believe, but they believe it too. Yeah, mo- most people believe for good reason that the DNA is like sitting in a vault in Paris and has been since the mid-90s when it was collected as part of the Chronos Project, which was this pioneering French um, survey of centenarians. So anyway, nobody really knows, you know, the next question is, well, if they want her DNA, like what do they think um, they could glean from it? It's unclear, but it's incredibly tantalizing to people who are interested in longevity, nonetheless. So, um, you know, as as one of the people I interviewed for this piece put it, there's like the biggest diamond in the world is just sitting mm-hmm. there and nobody can see it. And so there's this just like fanatical um, desire for this thing. And I think the, you know, the value and the fantasy and the... Um, desirability of it is even greater because nobody can have it yeah it becomes a kind of it's a detective story but also a kind of heist story they're trying to they're trying to break into this vault and steal exactly this diamond. exactly it's, yeah people yeah. people like want to know they want to know what's in there and once they know what's in there they want to know um what can be done with it i mean aubrey de gray believes that um you know it's like a crime against humanity that that to deprive us of this right knowledge. That that's, yeah. you know he's saying like i mean he sees it in life and death life and death terms and you know um presents it as like you could you know anybody who can put a finger on the scale um to get these people to release the sample like you could save you could be you know these are lives at stake is how he feels about it so anyway he comes in and is kind of like stirring um you know stirring the pot a little bit in the sense that he is also the editor of um, a biogerontology journal called Rejuvenation Research. And he published the Russian's paper, which, um, you know, until until he got involved, had, just, had kind of been floating around on the internet 
to to considerable interest. But once it was published in this journal, it was right. given the imprimatur of science in right. a way, which I think um, I am prepared to pretty firmly say much of it isn't. Why were the Russians doing it before before this guy got involved? That that's what's even more bizarre. Actually, they were just doing it at at a a hobby, like a hobbyist interest? <laughs> you know, I kept, I really kept trying to find an answer to that that wasn't just out of like passion and interest. But as far as I can tell, they are really, really into this subject. And then, of course, once the controversy took off, I mean, it's also for attention and notoriety. I mean, this has been a wild ride for them. It's been, <laughs> you know, it's been, it's been a thrill. And um, even like, Nikolai Zak, who is the mathematician turned glassblower, um, now that he's had his way with Jean Calment, he's like looking into debunking or, you know, well, I, he, I don't believe that he debunked this one. He's expanding He's now trying to go after other super <laughs> centenarians. So this, I mean, this, you know, they've, well, they've had fun with this. So. What was he like when you met him? So I went, I went to Moscow. Um, I thought, all right, everybody's been interacting with this guy like almost exclusively on Facebook. Right. Like, I just really, really wanted to like, um, you know, go behind the screen and see who this kind of like Wizard of Oz um, character was. And so I met him at a pizzeria in Moscow, and um, you know, we 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 talked for a number of hours. Um, the thing that is so kind of like fascinating and exasperating about the way he's approached this case is that he is so deep in the weeds. I mean, like, and he's coming up with these kind of like incredibly detailed theories on just the minutest of minutia of this case. Um, You know, there was one instance where after having numerous other theories shot down, he then looked at the only photograph of Jean and Yvonne as adults that exist and somehow concluded, I mean, where you see, where you or I see a shadow, he sees a shriveled sleeve of a <laughs> garment that is clearly, um, you know, being used to hide an amputation yeah, that occurred. I mean, it's, it's the theory, you know, it really gets Baroque. But the thing is, like, what I, what I kept saying to him is, like, there are some very basic... Um, like, you know, I feel like, I felt like he was really good at leading people astray um, with just this mind-bending focus on detail. But I was like, listen, if Jean Calment was not Jean Calment, why would she have agreed to, you know, do a series of extensive interviews with longevity validators at the end of her life? Um, Why would she have agreed to give a blood sample in the first place if she had spent you know, decades and decades and decades perpetrating this elaborate fraud. Why would she, you know, yes, her daughter's name is not on the family tomb. Weird. But at the same time, Jean Calment's body is actually in there. Why wouldn't she have requested <laughs> to be cremated? And other family members' names were not on there. Exactly. But it's kind yeah. of like whatever you, I would ask him, he... He had an answer always. Would You know, so I, I asked all those questions and he said... Well, because, you know, she's dead then and it would be fun for her to have the last laugh. So when you get into the realm of human motivation and psychology, um, you know, it's like you can you can twist any you can twist any 
fact kind of any way you want to, depending on how you see the case. This is a guy who's not interested in Occam's razor at all. But did you find him credible? <laughs> like, w did he believe his own? Or was he like kind of smiling at you aware no, that he was playing? No, it? He was no. not. I believe that he, I believe that he believes. I believe that he will undoubtedly find this podcast online, listen to it, <laughs> and write you, um, on Facebook. probably you and me both, a long email, you know, pointing out all our um, casual errors that we've made here in conversation and trying to bring you, bring you around to his line of thinking. I, uh, I'll tell you, I had, um, in the course of my reporting, I had written to a local genealogy society in Switzerland trying I was asking um there's a picture of Yvonne the daughter that almost everyone who cares about this question believes was taken at a sanatorium in Switzerland in 1931 now I believe if you see a, if, if a picture of one person at a sanatorium in Switzerland exists um and there is not a picture of another one Going with Occam's razor, we're going to say, well, probably she was the one who had tuberculosis and not her mother. <laughs> but, you know, Zach sees that same photograph and comes up with a whole other um, elaborate theory. But anyway, I had written to a genealogy, uh, a society of amateur genealogists in one of the Swiss cantons, trying to see if there were any records of the Calmont, you know, of um, Jean Calmont mother or Yvonne Calmont daughter in uh, a San in a tuberculosis treatment center there um, to no avail. But apparently they published the query in their local, I mean, in their in their monthly newsletter. And ping, I got a message from Nikolai Zak on Facebook uh, just a couple of days ago saying, I found your, <laughs> I found your query. I mean, I was like, I didn't even know these people had a newsletter, much less that my query was being addressed. And I mean, he's, he is all over it. So hello, um, <laughs> hello, Nikolai, if you're out there listening. Hi, Nikolai. Um, so we've talked about this kind of extensively, but I assure you that you, if you haven't read it, you still need to read this piece. It is, it's like a masterpiece of, uh, of sleuthing. Oh, thank you, Thomas. Um, and so you're one of the best profile artists, uh, working in American journalism, full stop. Um, and not just when you're writing about the deceased, but when you're writing about the living <laughs> as well. Um, I kind of, while I have you here, I want to pick your brain about craft and things like that. What do you look for? in a subject and how do you find new ways to finesse what can be a somewhat formulaic genre because I feel like you do do that um increasingly as I as I get older and just as you know my like body of profiles um just starts to pile up I, I think now as opposed to um when I was just getting started I, I'm looking for something that I have something to say about. I used to love coming like cold to a subject and kind of just learning like, everything about yeah, yeah, like burning up on everything and um, you know, want to go to you know um, South Korea and write a <laughs> write a story about uh, the most wired society in the world. Yes, want to go to um, you know Denmark and write about Danish TV. Absolutely. Um, but it's like, I, I feel like, and maybe this goes back a little bit to learning the French language and living in France. It's like, the more I know, the more I know how much I don't know. And um, I just find that more and more I'm, I'm looking for subjects that, yeah, that I feel um, like I can really just 
move the ball forward or add something to the conversation somehow, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you've also you've you've profiled a lot of like famous people too, who I'm sure you loosely knew something mm. about, but then you delved into like you recently profiled the president of France. Right. Um, you profiled Phoebe Waller Bridge and Donatella Versace and Michelle right. Obama. Well, okay, but with Phoebe Waller Bridge, mm-hmm. for instance, like I, I did that for Vogue, and that was so attractive to me because I mean, you're a fan. I'm I'm a fan, but I, you know, not not a super fan. I mean, I just I love. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, as I've never heard a person say they don't, they don't right. love Right, no Phoebe one doesn't like her. But, but just, like, just on the most kind of like prosaic level, something that was attractive to me about that was just that she is, you know, still just at, just on the kind of like upswing mm-hmm. of fame. And it was like her first Vogue cover. And she, you know, she's done a lot of interviews, but not that many at that length at this point. And so... I was like, I can do something here. I can write a long piece about her and I can ask her questions that nobody has asked her before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm interested in the answers. So that was like an absolute yes. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, because, you know, as a journalist, it can feel a little bit depressing how swiftly the screen and other things are, are encroaching on our territory and, and a lot of people don't turn to magazines mm-hmm. uh, to learn about uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge or other people. But do you think, what is it about like a really well done profile that still is essential or that, um, you know, do you believe in, you must believe in the form. What do we get when we turn to a New Yorker profile and we sink ourselves into seven or 8,000 words about something? I think, I think it can still be kind of when done right it can be a, a kind of magical experience yeah i'm into i mean i love reading profiles i, yeah. I just lo- i love reading other people's work um i think maybe what distinguishes a magazine profile i mean what you can do in a magazine because prof- sometimes i'm reporting or writing and i'm i'm like uh this would be so much just a three second flip <laughs> you know don't say that you know but it's true because with Anything visual, for instance, I mean, there's no, you know, um, I think it's like, you know, sports writing was at its height before when, when it was actually like describing things that people couldn't see. Couldn't right. See. And then when you started watching games, I mean, OK, sp- sports writing, um, sports writing profile. But I mean, actual like yeah. descriptive sports writing had to become yeah. something different. And so maybe maybe, you know, something similar is happening with profiles. I think the element of time is important in profiles. Um, you know, if because a profile is is essentially a series of interviews that are then processed and presented to you in a certain way. But if you're watching a television interview, I mean, unless it's a you know two hour documentary, normally it takes place um, in one location in one interrupted period of time. And so you get a person in one mood, in one outfit, on one particular day of his or her life, being asked questions about um, a certain point in time. And their answers to those questions have to be relatively soundbite friendly. I think in a profile, what's nice is you get, um, you know, a longitudinal sense of particularly if you have the luxury of spending a little bit of time. I mean, you can, you know, 
see someone like in a good mood one day and a bad mood one day. You can see someone being crushed about one thing and elated about another thing. I mean, I, I think what it is is you get um, like a more holistic picture just because, um, you know, you're not um, you're, you're not kind of trapped within the bounds of one encounter. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And you also get to like kind of interweave all this research that um that 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 i think yeah i just i i i hope that the mag is the long form magazine profile as it exists like stays with us for a very long time uh, i think we'd be missing something without it i wonder what um pieces really stick out to you that you've done over your career um who who is a, who's surprising to you or I, I, I'll expand the question a little bit more. When I write profiles, I find that often some of the things that strike me the most or like that mean the most to me don't always justify being in the in the piece. And uh -huh. so they're just like little memories I have or experiences. Does anything like that occur to you? I'm trying to think. Um, what's what's one of those for you? I will. So when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about this time I, I was profiling Spike Lee and um he like we were sh we were standing at a bar mm. and um on Martha's Vineyard and he like you know the bar was full of people that like love him and were giving him a lot of props and uh, he's been famous for a very long time but I just like turned to him and said wow they really like you man and like it was a very human moment he looked at me kind of like like you're a, you're a simple fool kind of. but then he like felt bad for that and he was like he was eating something but he like he just pushed it over to me and shared it with me and he was like here have some of this and he like it was like a very human moment That's that I found ineffable editor. to describe in the page but he kind of looked at me like obvious I'm famous but what you know? I mean what what is what's cool about that is like you're right that sounds totally impossible to render in dialogue I mean I because I was gonna say well I try to put those moments in the piece but yeah that one just sounds well, I, would, I just didn't have the space like for that whole to even get just, him in that room just too yeah. complicated but um what's nice about a profile is even if you can't put that in the piece like in any explicit way I'm sure it informed your sense of who he was yeah definitely. and you know so that's what I was trying to say about this just like accumulation of like detail and anecdote and yeah it doesn't all make it in there but um I think more than in other media, it's like somehow there in the piece because you're, as the writer, like you're you're narrating a profile with a huge degree of yeah. You, you keep know, making choices every right. time you describe them in any way whatsoever. Anytime you describe their facial expression, yeah, you're, you're, you're constantly rendering yeah. right versus versus like again television. I mean, it's like the footage that you have to work with yeah. is like so much more capacious. There's so much more that you can bring in. Yeah. Who are you a fan of and who, who do you like to read? I'm really excited to read um, my friend Hadley Freeman's book about her family. It's called House of Glass. And I haven't been able to get a copy of it yet, but I'm going to next week um, when I go to London. That's one thing you give up is like easy access to um English language books. Yeah, and Amazon right when, costs a lot more. Exactly. Out here. <laughs> right, right when they're published. You know what? It's like usually I read before I go to bed and I'm reading nothing right now because I'm watching every single second of Love is Blind until I fall asleep. <laughs> this is my passionate life right now. It's, the, screen, the screen is, is, is the taking unscripted, over. It's the unscripted series, <laughs> Love is Blind. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Thomas. It was a pleasure. Mm. 
thank you for listening. The American Library in Paris has served English-speaking readers in Paris and elsewhere since 1920. To read about its programs and events, please visit AmericanLibraryInParis.org. Please check out program notes for this and all our episodes on theamericanscholar.org backslash podcast. Au revoir. See you next time.